Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and yes, I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, today we have a, a really incredible first look of a brand new film. You haven't seen it. You can't see it yet. Um, although tomorrow that will change. Um, it is premiering at the um, Dances with Films um, Film Festival. And uh, it is an intense, wonderful film um, called Unsick. And today we're going to talk to uh, the filmmakers, um, Graham Streeter and his husband, Alex LeBosque, um, that are the, the masterminds behind this film. Um, the film Unfixed tells the story of Ari, who at the young age of 11 is subjected to conversion therapy after a brief encounter with another boy. Um, it fast forwards to Ari's life at 35, where he leads a seemingly content existence as a happily heterosexual individual. Um, He is convinced that he has been sexed. However, the outbreak of the pandemic um, sends his world into upheaval, reigning dormant questions about his authentic self and casting doubt on his previous identification as gay. Um, It is intense film. incredibly well acted. The cinematography is at times stunning. Um, so it's an exciting thing that um, the audiences at the Chinese theater tomorrow night are, are going to get to enjoy. Um, today, we are talking to the writer-director, Graham, and his husband, Alex, who is the executive producer. Um, Graham is known for his award-winning films including I May Regret, Imperfect Sky, Blind Malice, and Boys in Peril and Cages. So they've got quite a resume behind them. Um, Alex, in particular, uh, executive produced Blind Malice, Imperfect Sky, and I May Regret. Um, Imperative Pictures, their company, is really dedicated to kind of cutting-edge issues um, they have made a mark for themselves of not just doing fluffy entertainment or just high action entertainment, but um, they really intend and have a mission to have an impact. So we're looking forward to talking to them. Um, before we bring them on, however, we do need to go to Brody Levesque. Brody is the executive editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine. You can read Los Angeles Blade magazine at losangelesblade.com. And it is a magazine you should be reading every day. It features unique and um, directly reported journalism, uh, not picked up from other sources, so exclusive looks at issues of our day, particularly in the LGBTQ world and um, especially around both Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles where the two Blade papers are located. Um, So here's Brody with some of the breaking news today. Hey, Brody. Hey, Rob. Good afternoon, good day, good morning to our listeners across the globe. The United States Supreme Court today ruled on affirmative action, and it wasn't a good ruling. In a 6-3 vote, the justices ruled that emissions programs used by the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Harvard violated the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause, which bars racial discrimination by governmental entities. Now, in his opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts said that college admission programs can consider race merely to allow an applicant to explain how their race influenced their character in a way that would have a, quote, concrete effect on the university, but the just, Justice Roberts had added, but a student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual 
and not on the basis of race. There has been a significant backlash on this ruling as a lot of the progressive groups, including members of the Democratic Party and others, um, are looking at this saying, this is going to set things back. It is going to unlevel the playing field, particularly for black and Latinos, um, and, and to a limited degree, uh, other minorities. Uh, so this is going to have significant ripple effect and impact. We're going to have to wait to see how it shakes out. Um, the court did essentially give a carve-out for the U.S. military academies in Colorado Springs, West Point, New York, Annapolis, and New London, Connecticut, that for now the military can at least continue to use race uh, conscious admissions programs. Um, generally speaking, though, it's a very complicated issue. Um, I spoke earlier today with uh, Shannon Minter, who is the uh, legal director for the National Center for uh, Lesbian Rights. Um, Shannon noted that, in his opinion, and as the three dissenting liberal justices noted, the impact of this decision will be to worsen racial inequality in colleges and universities, which in turn is going to have a negative impact on all sectors of society. Now, the court this week has actually had three rulings, one of which we haven't received yet. We expect it tomorrow at the end of the term. And that particular case is going to be significant because it deals with the LGBTQ plus community and we are looking at a good chance that the high court may in fact make it more or less um, probable that you're going to see discriminatory practices put in place by some people in terms of how they treat the LGBTQ community. Last December, the court heard the arguments in 303 Creative versus Alanis, and this was to challenge Colorado's anti-discrimination law um, predicated on the fact that she was refusing to work on websites for same-sex couples. A couple of notations that need to be noted on this court filing. Number one, this was in a hypothetical. At the time the suit was originally filed, she had not been approached, nor did she have anyone who claimed to be a same-sex couple wanting a web design for a marriage site. Number two, this is being thrust upon us by the Alliance Defending Freedom. This is an anti-LGBT, Southern Poverty uh, Law Center-listed hate legal group out of Scottsdale, Arizona. Aid, the Alliance Defending Freedom has been going after LGBTQ rights. They've been at the forefront of um, attacking women's reproductive rights. It, it just it goes on and on and on. We don't really know what the court's going to do tomorrow, although most of the legal experts that I've been talking to feel that the court will probably rule uh, against um, against the state of Colorado and rule for uh, 303 Creative and the woman is a web designer. Um, now, this decision also will kind of fly in the face of a couple of previous decisions involving the masterpiece, masterpiece bake decision, which also is in Colorado. So this one's going to be significant. We really don't know um, where it's going to head. Uh, so we're waiting on that. That decision will be dropped tomorrow morning, Brody, 10 a.m. Eastern. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, the, the masterpiece uh, cake decision, um, which had – it was a weird ruling because it all it, – kind of dealt with how how he had personally been treated by the commission in Colorado, which was kind of a weird side note. But the argument mm -hmm. there, and I think the argument here, is the element of that the provider is providing something that would fall under, quote-unquote, free speech or kind of that kind of expression. And... Um, is there some anticipation that this could, even if it comes out, could be somewhat of a narrow ruling um, having to do with 
services that are aesthetic and have messaging um, as part of the service, or um, are is it are there fears that this will be just a blanket overturn? Given the court's track record with the Dobbs decision, uh, which, as you know, overturned Roe v. Wade, some of the other decisions that the court has made, there is a fear that this will be a broader um, opinion and it will have a much wider impact. Um, A couple of the attorneys that I've spoken to this morning indicated the best-case scenario would be a narrow ruling. Worst-case scenario will be a broad ruling. Right. Um, Given some of the things that the justices said during oral arguments back in December when they heard the case, uh, again, most of the legal experts I'm talking to are leaning towards this not being a good decision for our community. Right. But, I mean, to be fair, and, and they may be right, so, you know, because this court is kind of a wild card, um, but uh, the court just ruled on something yesterday, I believe, um, that came out in a different direction than people were anticipating that could have really thrown democracy and voting into question, um, putting power in state legislatures, and they did not give that leeway that people were afraid they might. Um, the question I have about both these, though, taking it uh, above the court cases themselves, are there advocacy organizations speaking out on kind of the broader issues that are implied here? One, with the affirmative action case today, there there's kind of a bottom line misunderstanding, if you will, of about racism in general. Um, you know, for years, the the concept of racism was that the ideal was to be, quote, unquote, colorblind, that, you know, you just treated everybody without looking at, you know, what race they were, what color they were, and, you know, that was the concept of, quote, unquote, equality. And in recent years, people have become much more conscious that people's backgrounds and the um, limitations that they have been under because of their race, because of their economic status, because of um, economic status caused by racism um, and uh, institutional racism, that you actually do need to look at the color of a person because it has formed what they have had opportunities for. Um, And that seems to be at the core of the different arguments that happened today at the Supreme Court, both from those who were in the majority and the the minority opinion, that that's where the difference of, of, of vision is coming in. But is anybody talking about that is my very long-winded question to you. There's been discussions. I, I, I think that right now that it is at the forefront of trying to you know, make estimations. There's a tremendous amount of pushback on this particular issue, as you know, particularly from the more radicalized elements on the right in the Republican Party uh, and people like Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis, who have accused, you know, even some of the federal courts of being, quote unquote, woke when it comes down to these issues. Um, Generally speaking, and most of the folks that I've talked to, including the advocacy people, I've had some conversations with folks in the Biden administration. Uh, you know, the, the overarching issue here uh, is systemic racism in the United States and the American nation being unwilling to directly address it. And when you have a decision like today come out, uh, it, it almost in many ways um, exasperates the issue across the board. So people are looking at it. I, I think right now, uh, it's going to be in the evaluation mode, and I think we'll probably get more feedback later uh, as in the next week or so. Yeah, okay. Uh, any other things we should know about? We did have two decisions. Uh, well, we had a couple things happen that I want to make note of. Uh, Arizona Governor Katie Hobb yesterday 
uh, signed an, uh, an executive order and she banned conversion therapy in the state of Arizona. A bill just passed through the Michigan uh, legislature. It's going to Governor Whitmer. We expect her to sign it either today or tomorrow, which would also outlaw conversion therapy. Uh, that would make, uh, I think, number 21 and 22, if I remember right, uh, or maybe it's 26 and 27, um, states to ban uh, conversion therapy. Now, 20, I, th- I think it's 22 of those states have done it by law, and I think the rest are by executive order. Uh, still, that's pretty significant. So that's that's a good thing. And then the other bit of news, which was good, uh, was we had two separate federal courts over two days um, strike down, at least temporarily, two state bans on gender-affirming health care for trans minors. Uh, ironically, one of the judges uh, in the Tennessee courthouse is a Trump appointee. And, and then next door in Kentucky, uh, that judge also uh, struck it down. So we now have a total of six federal courts that have um, struck down uh, a ban on transgender gender-affirming uh, use for the gender-affirming use. <laughs> Gender-affirming health care for the youth, there you go, minors, um, and two of those decisions um, are permanently enjoined. So it's a good sign. It, it means that the courts aren't buying into the arguments that these state houses are putting out there. I, in a cruder sense, most of the things that we've seen in these last few months has been you know, gender-affirming uh, surgeries and gender-affirming care amounts to grooming practices and mutilation of genitalia. Uh, it's It has spurred bomb threats, death threats. Uh, it, it's gotten so bad that in the case of Tennessee, the attorney general pulled virtually all the health care records for any transgender adult or minor who had gotten care at Vanderbilt University's gender clinic uh, under the TenCare, which is basically Tennessee's Medicare system. So it's been a bloody fight. It's been ugly. And the fact that we now have two more federal judges saying, uh-uh, this is not constitutional. So it's it's a ray of hope in what's been really a bad spring and, and early summer uh, for the trans community uh, in particular. Right. Well, uh Good news on the conversion therapy front. Um, that's kind of near and dear to my heart because I remember back, um, wow, it's probably 11, 12 years ago, when California was the very first to ban it. And I had written um, a piece about that, advocating for the ban in Huffington Post at the time, and ended up debating the head of the California Psychological Association who at first was not supporting the ban and then did support the ban. And we went back and forth because my article was condemning their reasons for not supporting it. And um, she came back and discussed it publicly um, on that forum. So, and, and it did, the ban did go through. California was the first. And it is great to see that, you know, a decade later, a little over a decade later, that, um, that is becoming more and more pervasive throughout the whole country. It should be 50 states. Um, it's a horrendous practice. I have friends who have, in adulthood, years after having gone through that, ended up taking their own lives because of the long-term effects that that, that has. And speaking of which, the film that we are about to talk to, Unfix, um, Conversion Therapy, is a core theme um, around in that movie of that movie um, as a backdrop to that movie and so uh, with that I'd like to welcome on to the show uh, Alex and Graham who are the filmmaking duo behind the film gentlemen welcome to the show thank you thank you Rob Um, yeah uh, this is Alex you may you may, we may both sound alike because we've been together for over 33 years. <laughs> so my mom's <laughs> really She can't okay, get I us, have, yeah, I have tell us two, apart. 
Yeah, I have to admit, I, I did peek on some of your social media and your cute pictures, and, and you guys are so cute. I mean, it's like there are pictures of you dressed alike, and it's like, it's like oh, my God, they're, they are adorable. Um, so, oh, you guys, tomorrow, tomorrow's their <laughs> – go ahead. I say, Rob, who's cuter? <laughs> I, you know what? You you guys are the yin and yang of cuteness. You both have equal oh. cuteness in your own ways. So, uh, yeah, oh. nice corner didn't fall for that one. Um, <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow, your baby is is seeing the world for the first time. Unfix has its premiere at Dances with Films. How are you guys feeling? We're um, feeling really good. I think. Um, you know, we've been, it's been a long uh, journey to get here, and every day that we have fought through, you know, trying to get a film going to begin with and the curveball of uh, COVID, and then, you know, all the world changing and the fight that can persist with LGBTQ rights, it just has been fueled to move forward, and all the more reason why we've been determined to get this thing done. And it just feels good to be on the finish line, and we're looking forward to tomorrow with very much. So I, I have to ask, in the film, part of the plot of the film does involve the fact that the characters are under lockdown during COVID. Was that a planned plot point in the film, or was it a fact that you were actually having to produce the film in, during COVID? It, it was it's kind of a kind of a blend of the two. I had written a story, this is Graham. I had written a story pre-COVID, but one of the things we do is we try to you know be very flexible as we're getting into production about what components, what elements we have to really shoot with, what's going to be cost prohibitive, things like that. So um, that was a factor, but also after COVID set in, the question just became, I don't know about you, but I'd watch TV and everything would be fine. And suddenly a scene would pop up and someone would be in a grocery store or something like that. And I would just, it would jar me. I'd say, wow, that's not safe. You know, <laughs> and, and the COVID <laughs> part of my brain would kick in. And I'm thinking, how long is this going to last? The shows that we're watching, will this be a thing of the past? Is this the future? How long will it last? And then some, so I, I kind of got derailed and I stopped writing because I just didn't know what our future was like. And a part of me was just saying, there's so many more important things than making a movie right now. We have to focus on other stuff perhaps. But then as things settled, you thought, as I, I mean, we figured, well, this is kind of, this is a moment in, in history. This is something that we will never forget. Let's dive deeper. Let's find a, a, a look, a part of COVID that we know exists in and let's, take the film, rewrite it just one more time, dip it in COVID and see how it aggravates the story even further and how it becomes a catalyst for tension or a opportunity for people to make unique decisions that they may not make if it were just normal daily run-of-the-mill times. Yeah, it was, it was and, so well incorporated in. I mean, it really became... Yeah, I, I, it's hard to think of the plot without it now. I mean, it's, it's because you integrated it so well. I mean, it was almost, you know, uh, there were a lot of things in the film that almost became characters in themselves, and the COVID aspect actually kind of played that way. Alex, were you yeah, going to add something? Yeah. Oh, sorry, this is Alex. I, I was going to add to that. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, we needed to um, kind of weave in COVID in a way that it could capture a moment in, in time. And um, so, you know, with a lot of the set design where we had a lot of mid-century furniture, clothing, we didn't want to confuse the audience as to, like, is this a period piece or is it current? So we were able to really utilize the moment to um, to kind of put that time to the present and not really confuse, but then we were very lucky that COVID allowed people to be in a enclosed space, which kind of helped the budget. 
Well, it, it also, you know, it's like I when I watch a lot of films, especially independent films, I'm I'm an avid watcher of symbolism and all that. And I have to say, the COVID thing actually worked really well because while the, the characters were masked in in the film, they were also masking secrets, and you know, they were hiding. Each one of them was actually hiding parts of themselves, and so the the, the, just the imagery of COVID actually worked really well thematically. Um, Graham, I wanted to ask you, um, pivot a little bit, actually pivot a lot. Um, you've talked about in the past how when you were growing up, um, your dad was an art teacher and your playtime with your dad was actually around, not around sports and, you know, other things that are more quote-unquote traditional, but in doing art itself. And obviously the father-son relationship in the movie is super pertinent. Um, but what was that like? Not that you knew anything differently, but what value do you think you took from having that artistic bond with your dad that you might not have otherwise had? That's a really good question. I think um, for me, I think I could easily have my and my father is a it's an interesting card because he's a sports artist and that's one one of the subcategories of his artwork is doing action sports uh, so it's a very uh, a classic heterosexual male kind of world that he really kind of resided in and but he had this art thing that I really grabbed a hold of and. I was not kind of like involved in sports or anything like that. So I could have easily been felt, I could have easily felt like I was um, not in the connection point with my father had it not been for the art. I could have easily, you know, just been like the son who didn't like sports and, you know, I would have felt very uh, out of place maybe, but um, we did have that and it became an affirmation for who I was and what I what I connected with, which would have been different than a lot of other boys my age, but it was a part of being a man at the same time. So it felt um, very affirming and very comforting to know I had that connection with my father. And yeah, I think uh, by diving into art early in life also uh, was, you know, it gave me my, my purpose for what I wanted to do in life and, and it was just a great building block for creating uh, and being a filmmaker ultimately. But no, having no idea I wanted to be in the film, I just always knew, like my father, I would want to be in art. And I was accepted for that, for who I was. I was one of the lucky ones, and, and you know. But yet we never talked about sexual preference or anything like that those, those days and even up to the day he died not really a topic he wanted to dive into, <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. the art was a bridging point. So that was something that we could connect with and you could be father-son for that reason. Um, one of my personal opinions about um, gay people and LGBTQ people and art is um, one thing, you know, we're, we're, we're all individuals and, and, you know, we bring our own, uniqueness to everything in our lives. But one of the things that we kind of have in common is that we entered into a world where we were dictated on how, quote unquote, things were supposed to be, how our lives were supposed to be laid out, including what kind of partners we were supposed to have and what kind of relationships with those partners we're supposed to have. And innately, we knew that that was not the case. And so in many cases, it gave us a way to think, quote-unquote, outside the box, because we had to, because inside Mm -hmm. we knew the box was not real for us. And I've noticed with a lot of what I would call creatives who come out of the LGBT community, we bring that into art. That's part of a thing that we bring is we, we don't let ourselves just look at the status quo, but we look outside. With your work, I see that kind of in spades because in in each of the topics that you tackle in each of your films, you bring a unique perspective and a unique experience within that realm. You've talked about it 
that the issues that you deal with are the bathwater around the subject and not the subject itself. How does your innate self-knowledge of who you actually were, how did that influence, do you think, that point of view within yourself as an artist? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, it's a, that's a good question. Again, I, I'm not sure. I've never really thought about that to that extent. Um, I just feel like when I, when I'm tackling a topic, um, you know, first of all, we, we got to know that the film takes so many years out of our lives when we're making it, it better just be something that is going to make me a better person in the end. I, I mean, I got to walk away saying I at least spent my time doing something something worthy you know and i think that there's a part of me always that fights to be like most people who feel like they're being judged for something or another that we have to make up for it somewhere else so let's do the best work we can you know let's do let's do something original something that's not been done because a topic is a topic but how is that topic approached do it like no one's done it before. And one thing about being a gay male, I know that the rules are not applied to me. You know, the typical rules don't apply to what we typically have laid out for a, a male or a female. We have roles that we can stretch and break and we can defy and we can, uh, we can take bits and pieces of things we like in life and we can make our own hybrid out of it. And that's who we are. And the same goes for art. And, as much as I, uh, I love a good movie, uh, if I've seen something like that already, I figure, well, it's already been done. Let's do something different. Let's break the rules. Let's, let's, let's uh, challenge ourselves and be as good as we can. And, and, and uh, yeah, just, just uh, find that thing that is special about the topic or about ourselves. Find our art. Find our groove. Find our voice. Yeah, it's super, super compelling and 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 engaging um, to get involved and see that and be taken on a unique journey. So that that's that's super awesome. Um, when you made the film Imperfect Sky, um, you've talked about how that was kind of a an epiphany moment for you in your your screen your filmmaking path of of wanting to do films that had importance and, and even greater relevance. And uh, Alex, you were um, the executive producer of that film. Was that a combined epiphany for both of you, or how did that play out both for you both personally, and then what, how did it affect the films that you brought forward after that? Um, well, you know, we, we kind of uh, talk about, what our next project would be and, and what is going on in the world that uh, is just needs to be addressed or talked about. And I think heroin addiction was something at the time that, and it still is um, that everyone is affected by and surprised how even this small town in, you know, uh, uh, somewhere in the States, it's just highly affected or very prevalent in, and, and it can be across, you know, big cities or, um, you know, just the rural, rural areas where it's very prevalent. And so we just decided to, to focus on that and tell that story from a different angle from, you know, uh, to a point where we're not victimizing or criminalizing uh, the victims, but we are really empathizing with them and seeing where they're coming from. So we, we thought that that was a really good time to really uh, explore that and do further research and in order to educate and open the eyes of those who really look down on that uh, with, you know, and, and try to instill the empathy in them and try to do it to the, you know, the most authentic and, and truest um, uh, lens. So, yeah, so we both really kind of thought it was very relevant to kind of pursue that topic at that time. Yeah. I think I'll also add that, um, you know, when we dive into a project, you know, you, 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 we try to look for projects that are um, – that we know of but we don't know a lot about. 
uh, that we know of that we should know more about. And as you do the research, like when we did the research for this film with Curtis Galloway and uh, Conversion Therapy Dropout Network and organizations like that, the more we learn, the bigger that that void of unknowledged world that we dive into, it becomes profoundly huge. And we, we realize that we're just hitting the tip of an iceberg and we just, by the time we're done with the film, you know, we've only tackled one tip of the iceberg, but we hope that, and this is where we, it has changed our lives that we're just doing, we're honored to be able to do a part of the whole process of fighting for, awareness of all these amazing issues that really do affect everybody in a family and our community and our country for that matter. So doing a little movie about heroin or Alzheimer's or in this case about conversion therapy, we hope that it's just the, it's, it's nothing. It's just the tip, but we feel like it, it, it's the beginning of hopefully something, a turn in a, a more positive direction. And, and if we can bring, if we can make good content, and we can bring in organizations like the Trevor Project that's with us right now and Porn Perfect and, and Conversion Therapy Dropout Network and organizations and people who are fighting. And, and they're all in their own lanes, but they're all going in the same direction. That, that's, that's, um, that's beyond making film for us. That's doing our part in society to just make a difference, to know that those four years of whatever film we're on, we've done well. We've done something good. Yeah, and, and that is actually one thing I love because when you see the films, you are not you you don't watch them as okay. This is a commercial about this issue. It it they become very evident that these are very personal experiences around an issue. It's a one character's experience that you walk with them on. Um, the one one thing that uh, you know, and as you said. You've tackled, you know, these different environments and these different issues from Alzheimer's to heroin to, in this case, conversion therapy. Um, one thing, and even before that with Blind Malice, you know, um, a character who is, who is um, visually impaired, that one thing that I've detected throughout all of these, and it's big time in Unfix, even though it's not really described in the, in the synopsis of the film, but most of the characters in Unfix and characters in the other films, each one has a huge issue with their own self-esteem. And it's, so self-esteem to me is a theme that I've taken as, as a fan from your different work. What, what mm. is it about self-esteem and especially the drawing of a character that has inspired you and what is the path that you would love an audience member to take away about that. Well, I mean, you, uh, the world is not perfect, you know? And so it, part of, part of our journeys in life is to take what we got and make the best of it. And a lot of that comes with our self-esteem to make, to make the best of, and it's easy to say, um, but it does, part of the change happens with ourselves, you know? So uh, like in this film and six, we have these um, rubber band bracelets that um, we use as part of the campaign we're giving out to everyone at the theaters and stuff. And it says, love yourself first and everything else will fall into place. And I think it's kind of a theme. Now that you think about it, it goes back to mm -hmm. all of our films, all of them, but it, it just holds the water. It holds water. It holds the test of, of all of our narratives um, because that's a factor. You know, love, love is the answer. You know, that, that cliche, it's there too. But love starts with yourself. So it kind of has to, you kind of have to go back one more little step just to the, the core of everything, which is going to be you as a person. And, Sometimes you have to look pretty hard to find that, but if you can, that's part of the, the that's part of all of our messaging and almost any kind of film that you do, and especially ours. But we just try not to make it too in your face. But yeah, like you said, you, know, you think about it, looking back, that's kind of our. It is a bridge of 
that thematically that holds a lot of our films together. I, I definitely see that. In fact, I was thinking if you had given those armbands to each of those characters in Unfix and they had read it and taken it to heart at the beginning of the film, how differently some of that would have um, yeah. of, uh, come about. You know, if each one of them got, yeah. oh, okay, <laughs> you know, let, let, me, <laughs> let me pull this together. So I want, I want to switch gears uh, a little bit about the making of the film itself. Um, uh, Graham, your, I mean, one of your many palettes of talents is obviously um, creating both uh, a storyline and a script and an environment for an actor to thrive. I mean, you, you know, so I don't, I don't know which, which aspect of, of what you do as a director and, you know, a cinematographer and a writer you focus on, but as somebody who comes from an acting background, I can tell you any actor would probably line up to play a part in one of your movies because you have you have such a palette that they can fulfill in doing that. Um, in this case, you have uh, Zane Haney, uh, Zoe uh, Papia, um, Damon McInnes, and Noah Toth are four of the principals in the film. Each one of them delivers this extraordinarily intense and authentic performance. What is your methodology? How do you work with actors, and how do you get that universal level out of each one of them? Um, I think a good actor uh, is attracted to a good story, um, and you hope by the time you present that story that you um, that they do love the work. And and Alex and I, when we do casting we don't give them the story right away. We give them a breakdown and a couple of really meaty pages for sides to play with, but they are full of questions usually. And they're full of like any good character, the character has uh, contradictions within the scenes, uh, all kinds of things in the range. We may give them like two or three scenes to do side, you know, to do a read for us. And they range from the, the smallest, Subtle, you know, subtle, almost just seem like you're almost listening, not even talking to the big, big moment and to see that level 11 on the person, too. And I think our first sifting process uh, as we look through actors is going to be, you know, that degree of talent. Uh, but then we have to match that once we have discovered these fine actors who have really done the homework. They really have done the training. They have all the tools. They are, they are amazing. Then can our script meet their standards? So we try our best to make sure that we're making the most powerful, compelling, and um, uh, real characters as possible. I mean, if, if there's a moment in any line or any word that doesn't ring true to the actor, you, you will see it in the performance. And so that has to be just rock solid. And that probably is where our time investing in our story um, becomes the payoff for that combination of the two, but good actor meets good script. And then uh, one thing we do is uh, Alex as a producer, we set aside a lot of time for rehearsals rehearsals in space where we're going to be shooting so we can get comfortable, we can block. And as a cinematographer, I have to be able to do all my direction before we really start rolling camera because then there's that technical side that I need to kind of put half of my brain on and trust the other half that the actors, we've done the homework with the actors. And then ultimately, Alex sets us a, a tone for the, the environment that we're going to be in, the the culture of our of our team, we keep it small, we keep it really intimate and uh, personal. Because now we're diving into very personal journeys with people that may be close to home, uh, may be opening emotional drawers that are very sensitive and not easy to rebound from mm -hmm. once they're kind of in those zones. So building this, that, that trust and that, you know, that community uh, at work uh, when we're doing our, our filming and uh, allowing 
putting all that aside and allowing the actor to just be in the moment and then for me just to capture them in the moment not to direct when we're actually filming but more to just capture follow and that's why sometimes people say our films feel slightly almost uh documentary in style but they're not they're down to the t scripted every word is paged out you know it's it's very deliberate yeah I and, and i wouldn't this is alex go ahead alex yeah Oh, I'm sorry. Just just to add to that, I think just, you know, uh, to back up a little bit in terms of um, our casting process, um, we we definitely make the time and we understand that this is probably one of the most important um, factors of a successful uh, film. And rather than casting um, actors to pay, play the role, um, we basically cast for these characters. And we, you know, spend the time and we sit down with them. The way we we prioritize the people in our lives on a social level, we we determine whether or not these people are right and are um, appreciative of the role and, and identify with a lot of, um, you know, uh, the the characters that um, that kind of shine through in their performance and their auditions. And we sit down and we ask them, like, what do you think about these roles? And based on their answers, you can almost determine whether or not they're right for, for, for these, these yeah. characters. And, yeah, and, and we've pretty much hit it on the, on the head most, most of the time. And so we, we kind of appreciate um, the way we go about doing that. And we end up, and, end up being friends with these people afterwards because of, of the quality of people that we, uh, we were luckily able to stumble across. So in the, in the film, Zane Haney and uh, Zoe Papia, um, the film really rides on their shoulders. I mean, the boys definitely, and the boys step up as well. But, um, you know, it, it, it really, you know, if Zane, Zane and Zoe aren't, aren't holding their own in the film, you would, you would have had a crash, and you didn't. They, they both mm-hmm. committed every second. Um, and you know where I didn't see it as a documentary style, I did see the intimacy of of your your process with them. What was it about Zane and Zoe in in that process, Alex, with the relationship with each of them that said, "Yes, he's the one. Yes, she's the one." Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think before you start the cast, you have to really think there has to be a a natural chemistry. And so what we did was we found our Zoe first, and then we said, okay, now there's a lot of really good actors out there, but who has that chemistry with with Zoe? And so she was able to read opposite them, uh, opposite the Zanes (laughs) in our auditions. And and that was a very important factor in what we wanted to find. Um, And then the next thing was, you know, how can they build off each other? Do they get along outside of um, the set? And and do they like each other? And I think that that was very important. And I think that that chemistry really allowed them to, to carry the film. Otherwise, you can kind of see it. I've seen films where you're like, okay, they're a couple, really? <laughs> you know? Okay. So, um, so, yeah, so that was, uh, that was something that worked really well in the end. And I'll, I'm just going to and chime then, in and say it was essential that they had that connection point that was beyond just the – that it was authentic because we as an audience have to never, ever one second doubt their relationship. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it was – And it's it, tricky. And it was there. I it's mean, tricky yeah. because and, of the and, subject matter. <laughs> Yeah, and it was it was hugely hugely successful. I mean, their their quiet moments, their silent moments were were as full and expressed as the dialogue moments. Um, so, and then what was it about um, Damon and Noah that brought them to you, or or made you click with each of them? I mean, Noah in particular. I mean, not to put that, Damon was fantastic and right on target. Um, in a way, not that his part was easy, but the plot 
you know, gave him real specifics to interact with. Noah's seemed to have to come much more organically and color that part even and bring in dimensions beyond even the script. What, what, what um, clicked with you guys and them? To, to do a good Damon character casting, we needed some very specific requirements that oh, you mean Max? We're aware of, yeah. And so that was um, besides acting, um, that so that was quite a search that had to happen after other things. So sequentially, we finally got come down to him, and then we did we fell in love with Damon, and then we fell in love with Noah, and ironically. Um, you might see from the from Noah Toth's hair, it it is colored. It is it is a style that's on him. This bleach blonde look, and it's got the curls on it and stuff. And uh, it, that's not his real hair. It's, it's brown and it's curly. And in fact, Noah and Damon look almost they just like they could be brother blood brothers practically. <laughs> they look so much alike and about the same age. So that was like. It was a great find to find the two, and then at the same time, like, oh no, this is not good because we needed every all four of them have to be in their own lane in this piece, and we need them very quickly to be identifiable and different. And so, they, uh, so we we it was the choice uh, that we decided to have Noah do a blonde uh, look on him, and then Damon cut his hair. And then suddenly they were completely you know, yin and yang kind of a feel to them, and their chemistry was awesome as well. And uh, it just worked out perfectly. But again, like Alex said, it starts with really, really good casting of talent, and then we 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 can adjust from there. And uh, yeah, I, and I agree that um, they both have this, such interesting journeys in the story, and uh, definitely Noah is kind of a wild card in this piece. Yeah. Yeah, and most most yeah, of the actors when we asked when we asked most of the actors when we auditioned for the Max role, we said, you know what, um, what would you do? Like, what? How committed are you? Um, would would you shave your head if you needed to for a role? And Matt and Noah said yes. He was very open to it. I mean, he's like, I I want to be this edgy. I want to be part of this as you know, uh, making making the character real and that was a huge sign whereas most others was like no i you know i don't think i want to do much with my hair or i want to keep it like this it just it, it just gives you a little bit of an idea of their commitment hey, rob i'm going to also add this there were you know when we did the casting process we opened this up to every color every everything it was there was no description about who these people were going to be because we had a blank slate to begin with and then once we got uh, um, Zoe and then these things started to kind of like, okay, now that's a part of the puzzle now. Now how do we, now we have to, now it makes other things more specific. But we were open to everything, including we never asked what their sexuality was, what their preferences were, how they referred to, you know, how they identified with themselves. None of that has ever nor was part of the, the formula. But I will say there were when you look at the sides that we gave out for the first original um you know casting call and and read there was some pretty specific stuff that you would have to do in this scene the implications were pretty clear about what kind of a person you would be portraying as a character and we had so many talented actors bow out male actors saying you know i don't think and this is 2022 you know at that time they bow out. They it, apparently being an actor is, you know, you have to be. A, you don't have to be a serial killer to, to, to be able to play a serial killer. But um, just kind of, and this was Los Angeles, so it was, it was kind of interesting to see. Wow, we we still back to the content. You know, we still have a long way to go. Bottom line, a long way to go. Wow, I'm, that that is surprising to me. This this is, you know, in this day and age, I, I would. Hope that would be more. Uh, you got the right people, though. I mean, you know, however, yeah. however it ha- happened, and you know, it's like uh, they were all excellent. And I, I'm not throwing smoke in that direction. Um, I just, for whatever reason, for me, Noah's performance um, 
and I think it was because the the things that happened to each of the characters, his were kind of much more in his own lane, where the other ones, you know, and I don't want to give away the plot details, but you know, they they were so interactive of each other, and you know, and when you're acting, that is kind of a support. Um, but he had to portray a truth that was his own inner pain and and True. un 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 or uninvolved with the others, and he just nailed it. Um, it was just spectacular. Um, I want to kind of pivot a little bit to a writing hat because that's another another uh, passion of mine, and and of course I'm looking at the film from a writing perspective. Um, a lot of your films are very surprise-oriented. In other words, and that's why I've stayed away from a lot of the plot, because I don't want to give away the plot twist. Um, but in, in the process, I'm detecting that the audience is allowed to know things that the characters aren't. And a lot of the magic of the film is not so much the revelation at the end of things the audience doesn't know, but it's revelation of things that the characters didn't know but the audience already had a sense of, and we're getting to observe the character reaction. Is that what you intend as a writer, or am I jumping ahead on that? You know, um, when we do a film, when we finally finish a screenplay and we make a film, we, we go through a, a, uh, a process of, of focus groups uh, where we're in the process of editing. You know, when you're revealing story, like plot twists or, you know, aha moments and stuff like that, or like you're saying, where maybe the audience knows before the character or the character knows before the audience. It's written, so it's a matter of how much you want to give to what side, you know, to make it feel lean one way or another. And when I'm writing, I'm always thinking there's, in a focus group, when it finally gets to the focus group stage, everyone's coming from a different walk of life. Everyone's looking at life through a different lens. So some people are going to get certain things real quick. Are they going to assume mm-hmm. things or some others will, it'll pass and it won't hit them like until the end and it'll hit them like a brick wall. What happens if you get it at the beginning versus what if you get it at the end, does it really spoil anything or does it make it even richer? And it should, and we try to do it this way. Let's say you see the film the first time and you go, I was crazy good, but I, I really want to see it again because I think, I think I would appreciate the second time around. These are the kind of films we like to make good enough to see twice because the first time around, wow, I missed something. And now if you go back and look at that scene, you look at everybody, you see the reactions and you say, well, they got it, (laughs) you know, because they are the other ones uh, navigating that issue, that, that secret or whatever. And it's right in front of us, but we don't see it to the point that, that's how human interaction is. When we have a conversation or we have a fight with someone and we say something or we do something, it's, it's not just that one person. It's everybody in that scene has a – they're coming from a different perspective and they have different baggage they're carrying. And right. it's not always what you see on screen. It's, there's backstory to everything, and it takes time to really understand a person. And sometimes you have to just get in their shoes to figure it out. Yep. And unfortunately, that is our last word on the film. Again, it is showing tomorrow night at the Chinese Theater with Dances with Films um, premiere. Um, Hopefully it will be available in other avenues after that. Um, Guys, thank you so much for what you do and what you contribute to the world. It is really breathtaking and exciting, and um, I'm hoping for the greatest success um, for for the film Unfix, um, and uh, check out Imperative Films online as well. Um, and you can uh, Google Graham Streeter and get his whole filmography behind it. But uh, guys, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, it's been awesome, and um, very excited for you. Thank you. thank you so much, Rob. And and it's it's a pleasure to to speak with you and meet you and to understand how much you are um, interested in our work. And so um, thank you. And Rob, everyone can always go to unfixedmovie.com, unfixedmovie.com, and everything's there. there. There you go.
Thanks so much. All right. All right. Take care. All right. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.